The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Tell this brief story, which highlights an important issue for us to consider this morning. Some of you have heard this before. There once was a man who had an apple tree in his yard. And it was a nice-looking tree, I suppose, except for the fact that year after year after year, it just didn't produce any apples. And his neighbors and his wife and his children, even from time to time, would point that out and would comment on it and poke a little fun at him. Hey, what's, what's with your apple tree? There's no fruit on it. So he finally got fed up and decided to solve the problem once and for all. And he went out and he bought a stepladder, a hammer, a box of nails, and three bushels of beautiful, ripe, red apples. And then under cover of night, he climbed up in the ladder, took hammer in hand, and nailed every single one of those apples to his tree. And the next morning when the sun came up, wow! What a gorgeous-looking tree. It was laden with fruit. And from across the street at the neighbor's house, it looked wonderful. And even from his own house, from the kitchen window where his kids and his wife looked out, pretty impressive. Until, of course, you got a little bit closer or waited for a little bit longer, and then it appeared much different and became the laughing stock of the neighborhood. Everything went rotten, fell off. Why? Why did it go rotten? Why did people laugh at him? Obviously, because apple nailing is entirely different from apple producing. Entirely. You can apple nail for a while, and everything will look really good from a certain distance, from a certain perspective, from, for a certain amount of time. But eventually... Everything will become clear. None of those apples are actually worth anything. The tree is not any different. And it all comes out in the wash. Genuine fruit only occurs on trees, on vines, in people because of an internal, inherent work. Something inside produces real fruit. Always and only. That's what brings us to our text this morning, John chapter 15. Let me read verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. 
Obviously, this whole passage is built on the vine branch fruit metaphor, this illustration that's the basis of the, of the uh, chapter here. So I'm going to spend most of my time on here this morning. So before we move into a couple of larger points about it, we're going to spend a couple minutes being sure that we understand what's being talked about here. So verse 1, he begins, I am another use of that loaded phrase, the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. Jesus again takes it upon himself. I am, he says, the true vine. In saying the true vine, he's setting up a contrast. There's another vine, an old, false, decrepit vine. There's a contrast there. Jesus is the new and better vine, which fits right in with this book. John's done this over and over again. It's the flavor of this book. Constantly showing something to us about Jesus so as to draw us to him. We've seen again and again, he's the new and better Jacob. Remember that from back in chapter 1? All the promises of God resting on him. He's the new and better temple where we actually meet with God. He brings the new and better life over and over again. This book is, is making very clear to us that everything that the Old Testament is pointing to, everything the Old Testament is pointing to, finds its completion, its fulfillment in Jesus. Light and life, the Word of God, the presence of God, the promises of God, the deliverance of God, all comes to a person only only in Jesus. And here's another thing that comes to a person only in Jesus. Fruit. Fruit. He is the true vine, filling the earth with good fruit. In contrast to what? Old, false vine. The Old Testament's really clear about that. Again and again and again, the old, false vine is ethnic Israel. Prophets make that really clear. Psalms make that clear. Repeatedly, ethnic Israel is called a vine, and every time it comes up, it's negative because it's a failed vine. Isaiah chapter 5 is a great place. You can jot that down. You don't need to turn there, but jot it down and look at it later. In that chapter, God is described as one who plants and tends to a vineyard. Does it sound familiar? Just like in our passage today. He plants this vineyard carefully and skillfully, and he waits for it to grow and to produce fruit. Like any owner of a vineyard, that's what the whole game is about, producing fruit. And he's waiting and he's waiting, but the text says he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Sour, shriveled up maybe, inferior, bad fruit. That's what he, was, that's what he found, that's what he waited for, and then he found, oh, bad fruit. Then he gets a little more explicit down in verse 7 of that chapter. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, the fruit he's looking for. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then it launches into a lengthy pronouncement of judgment on Israel. Five woes to Israel follow that. So get that. God has a purpose there that he's striving for. Good fruit, says righteousness and justice. That's what he's looking for. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, the Bible repeatedly says. And he's looking for righteousness and justice to be spread everywhere. The mark, the very makeup, the nature of God, he wants that spread over all of the globe through his people Israel. That's his agenda, but it doesn't work. It didn't happen. The vine planted in the midst of the nations failed. It didn't produce the fruit purposes of God never fail, and so he has planted another vine, a true vine, and it will produce righteousness and justice amongst all the nations. Ethnic Israel is not the true vine. No collection of people are the true vine. I am the Lord himself. Come down to earth. The Lord is the true vine. The Lord spreads out over all of his creation Himself and his nature through people connected to him by faith. Which is what gets around to us. Gets around to verse 2. Verse 1 sets up that picture of Jesus is the vine, the true vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. And then verse 2, he begins to discuss the branches. Now, as with any vine, or, or perhaps it might help you to think of a fruit tree. If you're not familiar with a vine, think of a fruit tree that's close enough. 
you have the, the basic vine or, or the trunk that's planted in the ground, and then off of that you have branches that extend out and the fruit grows on the branches. That's the basic picture here. Up from the ground into the vine flows the moisture, the, the nutrients, the minerals, whatever, flows up and then goes into the branches and produces the fruit. And a farmer, naturally, is always seeking to maximize the fruit production. That's why he's in this business. And so he tends to his branches. He, he clips off little shoots here and there, little branches that are going to be distractions for the moisture, so as to get everything focused on the main job of fruit production. So he's going around to his branches that are producing fruit, the productive ones, and he clips them and trims them, cleans them, prunes them. Very close words there in this text. The clean branches get cleaned so as to produce more fruit. That's what he's doing. And from time to time, the vine dresser finds a dead branch that isn't producing. That one he cuts off and throws away. And it's right there at that point that some controversy enters into this pretty simple analogy here. Obviously, some branches are cut off and thrown away, and obviously in this picture, those are branches that had grown off the tree and used to be alive, otherwise they would not have grown, right? So, the question becomes, if they were alive and then they died and they got cut off, these branches that he says in verse 2 are branches of mine, are those intended to illustrate people who were Christians? Lost their faith and then get cut off and thrown away? You see how that arises. It's a natural question. They were once alive, now they're dead, now they're discarded. Is that what he's trying to point out? Is he talking about people who lost their salvation? Well, in a word, no. It's not. They're not supposed to represent Christians who lost their faith. To see that in there is, is to press the analogy too far and is to miss the main point. You, you can press any analogy too far. For instance, you could realize that all fruit trees totally die eventually. Nothing lives forever. So you can't go that far and say that all Christians will eventually lose their faith. You can't do that. My a peach tree in my yard, I'm cutting off branch after branch after branch year as year over year because it's dying slowly. That's how plants work. You can't press the analogy all the way to that end. And to do that misses the main point. This analogy here is doing two things. It's explaining something. It's explaining how fruit gets produced. And it's a warning about something. It's a warning against the notion that merely being externally connected is sufficient. You get that? It's informing, here's how fruit's produced, and it's warning that merely only being externally connected isn't good enough pointing that out. It's warning against someone who looks like they're attached to Jesus and, and in some way actually is attached to Jesus but isn't genuine. And the clearest first primary example of this is Judas himself. Remember the context into which this is spoken. Judas was there. He left. They all think he went to the grocery store. They have no idea he's coming back with the guards. He's one of them. He's been with them for years, went to church every week, taught Sunday school, went out witnessing, gave his tithe, and was not clean. Chapter 13 makes that clear, verses 10 and 11. He's not clean. Verses, verse 18, he's not chosen. And several other places in this book make it clear that Judas did not have saving faith, but he was one of the closest followers of Jesus, one of the twelve. Jesus is trying to explain him and warn against him. The book of John does this all the time, if you think about it. John's repeatedly talked about how there is faith, there is belief, like Judas's belief like the crowds have, and there is belief that's genuine, that saves, that remains. Again and again, this book talks about that. Here it is with Judas. Sometimes it's really hard to tell what's genuine and what's not genuine. Looks good and connected on the outside, but is there an inner connection or not? Really hard to tell with Judas, for example. But eventually what you realize is that, hey, you know, you're looking at this tree and you realize, hey, that branch doesn't have any fruit on it. It's stuck onto the tree, but there's no fruit. 
which must mean that it's not actually connected on the inside, is it? You realize that eventually, they're about to realize that about Judas. So no, this is not talking about somebody losing their salvation. It's not going there. Rather, it's informing about how fruit is produced and it's warning about what happens to those who don't remain cut off and thrown away. And that warning is issued to the 11 clean disciples, those who are believers. Why is that? It's, it's like this. If I were to say to you, suppose we live together and I give you this warning, hey, that jar of yellow liquid in the fridge, don't drink that. It's not Mountain Dew. I need to take that to the doctor on Monday. You're going to hear that, and you're not going to drink it, are you? Now, there's no discussion there about would you have drunk it in the first place? Would you have drank it in the first place? Do you even like Mountain Dew? Would you have been drawn to it? Did you even know it was in the fridge? We're not discussing that. My intention is that you not drink that, and I assure that you're not going to drink it by telling you what it is and warning you against it. There's no theoretical discussion here about, well, could the 11 faithful ones have done this or that? There's no discussion here about that. It's the warning by which God assures they won't. Tells them what happens to those who depart. They're cut off and thrown away into the fire. And the faithful Christian hears that and says, then I don't want to go there. And he stands way over here, far from the cliff. I don't want to be anywhere near the the edge. God, help me to remain. Work in my heart. Keep me faithful. Give me grace. Faithful Christian hears that warning and steers away from it, just like you, my roommate, hear the warning, and you be sure to avoid the jar in the fridge. It's the purpose of this warning here. It's the purpose of the metaphor. Explain fruit, where it comes from, and serve as a warning. So we're going to focus most of our attention this morning. If you want to talk about that further, feel free to come up to me afterwards. But out of this illustration in this passage, there are three questions that kind of rise to the surface, I think. They're going to form the bulk of our time here this morning. I'm going to raise these three questions, then let Jesus in the passage answer them. And together, these questions and these answers, they, they push towards this main point. You're supposed to leave here more than just informed about something. Instead, my hope, my prayer is that you would remain in Christ. That's the point. Remain in Christ who will produce in you his fruitful life. Remain. Don't wander. Don't leave. Remain in Christ. Not in something else, not in someone else. Remain in Christ who himself will produce in you this fruitful life that glorifies him and the life that you want is really good for you. Remain in Christ who will produce in you this fruitful life. Three questions towards that main point. Let me start with the first one. It gets right at the heart of the illustration here. How is fruit produced in your life? First question. The obvious simple answer, fruit comes from abiding in Christ. Is that not plain here? And since we're going to be talking about fruit, let me explain fruit here for a minute. Obviously, it's figurative here. What does he mean by fruit? Some people think that the fruit is talking about actually converts, about new Christians. And they get that. It's kind of hinted at down in verse 16 where he says, you were appointed to go and bear fruit that itself remains. So people read that and they see their a missions commission. Go, you who are bearing fruit, Go bear fruit that itself remains. They see some extension there about outreach, missions. And it's that's possible because he's gonna get more and more pointed, Jesus is, in his issuing of the of the statements, go, you're sent now as my witnesses. That's coming up more and more in these following chapters. Some people see that there. Others, though, say that the Old Testament context that stands behind this whole analogy, we talked about it from Isaiah 5. Fruit back there in those passages is things like righteousness and justice. The character of God, the nature of God is the fruit. So in New Testament language, we might call that Christ-likeness, or maybe the fruit of the Spirit, something like that. 
So there's debate here. I, th- I think, though, the best answer is the comprehensive one, to say yes to all of them. Verse 5 ends, apart from me you can do nothing. Not, apart from me you can do missions, or apart from me you can bear character fruit, apart from me you can do nothing, he says. Jesus is not talking about some portion of the Christian life. He's reaching for all of it and pulling it all in and saying, apart from me you can do nothing that is of spiritual value. Nothing in your existence, nothing in your being, in your life is fruitful in a spiritual sense if you're apart from me. With me, though, everything is fruitful. I think a comprehensive answer is the best way to look at that. Fruit is big. It's broad. All of your life that's of value comes only one way. What is that? How how does that fruit come about? Virtually impossible to misunderstand this, I think. People are branches connected to the vine. Into the vine flows the nutrients and the moisture, and then into the branches, and the fruit happens. Being connected to the vine is the whole ball game here. Fruit comes about in your life only when you are connected to Him, and the life and the grace and the power of God flows through Christ into Christians and holy living, other believers. All the characteristics of God come out of your life, come about because you are connected to Him. That's almost impossible to misunderstand, and you know that. You know it. Ephesians 3, the Spirit renovates your heart to make it more and more Christ's home. Chapter 14 of John, the Spirit comes, and the calls to obedience are numerous there. Obedience in the Spirit It's the fruit of the Spirit. You know that. So why, why then does the church, and why then do individual Christians spend so little time actually attending to the heart, the inside? If we're talking about an internal connection, not just a mere external connection, that the bark is fastened, Talking about an internal connection through which sap flows, if you think of the analogy. Talking about the inside. Why do the Christians and why does the church spend so little time actually, actually attending to the heart and so much time apple nailing? Attending to things on the outside to the exclusion of the inside. So much time loading on and looking at and judging what seems to be external, visible fruit. External behaviors carried out, classes attended, money given, theological issues understood, apparent numbers of, of, quote, new believers won and baptized. Christians, those who think they're Christians, those of other religions, Irreligious people of all sorts constantly attend to the outside. Why is that? Because it's easier. It's something that you can get your hands on. You can grab a hold of it, suck it up, and do that for a little while, and look good for a little while. It all comes out in the wash, though. Judas did it for several years, but eventually became known. You can get your own hands on it, or you can tell someone else to get their hands on it. Set up the steps for them to walk through, and then evaluate them to see how well they've done. All on the outside, we can get a hold of it. It's tangible for us. Try to say all the right things and perform the right acts, and give and attend and smile when we're supposed to and talk about sin as if we're grieved by it, talk about the lost as if we grieve for them, sing to God as if we're moved by Him. Try really hard to stop looking at internet pornography and women on the street. Try really hard at that. Try really hard to stop speaking so critically. Try really hard to not be so fearful 
Uh, what's going to happen to my kids who are wandering off? Or now that I've lost my job? Or these kinds of things that, that scare us. Try really hard to stir up courage to witness. And then we kick ourselves, or, or lie about it, when we fail. It's all apple nailing. It's all on the outside. We're dealing with the stuff that's visible that we can get a hold of, that we can try really hard for. And the church culture all around us either explicitly states or strongly implies that what we really need to do is just do it more. Do it harder, do it better. Follow these three steps and hold your mouth just right. Work it this way and then life will all work out. It doesn't. Nothing comes from only the outside. Fruit comes from the inside. From being connected to the source of the nutrients, the source of the power. Internally connected. The opposite of all those struggles is fruit. And fruit only grows in your life as the power of Christ runs like a torrent into your heart. Grace of the Lord runs into you and changes you in here. It moves in and it grabs a hold of a person. And it changes all that she looks at. It changes what she values. It changes her perspective, what she loves. And from that internal change comes a thousand external changes. The fruit. We have to attend to the inside. It's a sovereign work of God on the inside of us to change us in here. So I pray stuff like this, not always these things, not always in this combination, but things like this is what I pray for myself. I do this some regularity, but I pray, God, would you open my eyes here? I'm looking at the Bible. Would you open my eyes and show me who you are? He has to show me. Open the eyes of my heart, Ephesians 1. Then I read the Bible and I pray, God, would you show me what's marvelous about you here and what's not marvelous about me here? So he opens my eyes so I can see the Bible and then he shows me some of me there. What needs to change in me? What I need to be corrected of? How I need to trust him in a different way? And then I pray, God, would you take those things and put them together and satisfy me with your steadfast love so that I can be glad? From Psalm 90 talking to him, saying, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this in me? And what he's doing in me is in relation to him, satisfying me with him, showing me him, showing me me and where I fall short of him. But I'm asking him to do in my heart on the inside first. And then I take that throughout the day as I find myself tempted to sin or actually sinning and I say, God, rotten fruit's coming out of me what I'm saying or what I'm being drawn to. Again, show me yourself and chase out of my mouth all taste for this. Woo me to you throughout the day. Gracious God, help take over, move into my heart. It's prone to wander, but would you take it and seal it? Seal it to yourself. You have to fight here in the heart first at the root before you fight for the fruit. You don't grow, grab apples and stick them onto you. You reach down through the vine into the roots where the power is and you try to in any way possible say, God, if there's some of me in the way, remove it so that it will be drawn up into me and change me. And then the fruit happens. It happens from being connected to the vine. I'm starting to move over and already into, this, into the second question about how does that happen. Let me go there in a second. But first question, where does the fruit come from? It comes from being connected to, from abiding in, remaining in, same word, the vine. And the second question then, which I've already started to answer a little bit, becomes, well, how do you do that? How then do you abide in the vine? It's obviously critical that we abide in the vine so that, that work happens inside, but how do you abide in the vine? We've been talking about that a little bit, with the, the prayer and taking the scriptures, but let me look at the text and see how Jesus fleshes that out a little bit. 
In verse 7, he starts to touch on the answer to this question, how do you abide? He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, he's kind of running it both ways, kind of back and forth on a highway. If you abide in me, and then from the other way, if my words abide in you, so us abiding in him is his words coming into and sticking, remaining, abiding in us. That makes sense if you think about it. To actually stay connected to the vine is to have the life and power of the vine flow into you. Well, how does Christ flow into us? In the Scriptures. His Word flows into us, but it's not just memorized and and set off here on the side. It's moving into all the different rooms of your heart, if you will, taking over, coming to, to be the rule of your life, the standard, the lens through which you look at everything. The Spirit taking the Scriptures and renovating your heart to make it Christ's home. So he touches on that there in verse 7. I sometimes think of it like like Tylenol, maybe. You take a Tylenol, you take a, a couple of tablets or whatever of Tylenol, you swallow it, it goes into your stomach, and then it goes into your bloodstream, and it moves throughout your whole body. And whether you stubbed your toe, or you broke your finger, or you have a headache, it's the same process. Tylenol in, Tylenol dispersed, and it fixes stuff. Toe and head, even at the same time. The word runs into you and then runs all throughout you and begins to control you on the inside. Hinted at in 7, then made a little more explicit, I think, in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Abide in my love. Jesus' attitude towards us is one of love. Talk about that a little bit more later. So to abide in him is to abide in that attitude of love, to remain in that attitude of love that he has towards us. And how do you do that? By keeping his commandments. Now, this is not a contradiction to what I was just talking about before, about attending to just the outside stuff, just doing things. It's not a contradiction. Note this carefully. He's saying, abide in me, Nourish this inner connection in me by having my word run throughout you and then obeying it. That's not apple nailing. Apple nailing is attending to the outside to the exclusion of the inside. It's different than that. But it's also different than just learn more stuff. That would be the inside to the exclusion of the outside. See the difference there? He's not saying just do stuff on the outside, nor just do stuff on the inside and learn more and get to know me more, but never apply any of it. If the word is actually moving into you and taking over in you, head to toe, all over, it's going to change how you act. It's going to change how you think, what you love, what you do. It's important that you get the relationship in the right order there. First, The word runs into me and takes over. And then it comes out and I act on it. Those things work together. You abide with Christ by taking him in and then moment by moment walking with him throughout the rest of the day, obeying whatever you see about him in the scriptures. Do you follow that? We must, we must, we must hold on to the obey part of these chapters. It's all over the place. Obedience is expected. Obedience is required. But not obedience at the attempted exclusion of the internal transformation. Obedience coming out of the internal transformation. God, open my eyes, I pray. Let me see you, and let me show you then how I have to walk with you. The next paragraph, verses 12 to 17, give us one particular important commandment. I'm not going to spend very much time on this, but I do need to comment on it because it's, an, it's a commandment that Jesus is really hooked on right now at this time. Remember where he is in his setting. He's departing. The disciples are there with him. It's the, the night of the Last Supper. 
and he's told them his new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And here he's on that same commandment again. It's the first part, verse 12. It's the last part of the paragraph, verse 17. It's the main point of that paragraph. Stick with me. Identify yourself with me. Understand me. Join yourself in union to me. Walk with me. And one of the first things I want to tell you to do is love one another. Like I love all of you. Sitting there, he's talking about the 11 disciples there. These men that he has known, he says, chosen, died for so as to have relationship with them, stands ready to answer their prayer. People that he cares about. The community of faith. And you cannot say, Lord, I love you. I don't love them, though. You can't say that. If he's living in you, if he's abiding in you, making clear his commandments to you, the first one is, love those whom I love. These ones. You didn't choose them. I chose them, and I chose you to be a part of them. Love them. Lay down your life for them. Love them like I do. From the heart, earnestly, sacrificially. Give yourself to them. We have to see that there. Take that. Embrace it. So I want to say about that paragraph. We've talked about it a little bit before, but you have to see Jesus' mind, the first thing that he skips to is this. It's important to him. It should be important to us. But let me try to explicitly answer the second question here. How do you abide in Christ? Here's the simple answer. By receiving and taking hold of and submitting to changing power of Christ's word. Word runs into you and then you submit to it. You receive it, you grab a hold of it, you submit yourself to it, put yourself under it, and you trust it. Christ's word then changes you. You have to do that moment by moment. So very concretely then, here's what I would suggest you do. It's what I try to do. Take your Bible in the morning. Take it wherever you are. Read that passage. Read that story. Read that section. You read that and you say, God, what do you want me to see of you here? What do you want me to, to see? Show me, would you? And who am I here? What, what does this mean that I'm supposed to trust but don't? How I'm supposed to act but don't? You might even write that down. Write it on a small piece of paper so you can carry it with you throughout the day. Write down what you see about him, what you're supposed to trust about him, what's supposed to change in you. As you're asking him, he'll show you different things. It won't be the same every day, but different things will come up. And you write that down. And then you don't just close your Bible and set it over here and forget about it. Take it with you, which is why you might want a little piece of paper. Take it with you, and throughout the day, check with it. Maybe you stop at lunch and you say, okay, four or five hours ago, whatever, what did I find? Open up your little piece of paper and you say, I found that God is the creator of everything that is, and therefore he is in charge of everything that is. I can trust him. Even with the guy at 1030 who ripped me off and stole that contract from me. Yeah, even with that. Even with the woman at the drive-thru who was really mean to me. Yeah, even with that. Even with my kids who are going crazy right now. Even with that. So you, you pull it out, you look at it, double-check how your morning is gone, repent if you need to, ask for more grace to help you follow more closely to that in the afternoon, and move out. Think of it throughout the day like that. That's you with the word running into you, taking over, and then you walking with it throughout the day. That's you abiding with Christ, moment by moment by moment. You conscious of him and what he's teaching you about him. The opposite of that would be to hear the word and forget it, and then go out and live according to whatever your standards are. Never check back with him. Never repent and ask for his grace to conform you to himself. It would be the opposite of that. Don't do that. Abide with Christ. 
That's where fruit's produced. You have to do that, but why should you? I mean, it's clear how the analogy works here. Vine, branch, fruit, that's pretty clear. But why should you care about that? It's the third question. This one gets at motive a little bit. And Jesus answers this question in two different ways. He answers it negatively, and he answers it positively. Negatively, he says something in the the first part of verse 2, and then again in verse 6, it is critical for us to properly understand. We talked about this a little bit already. Verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Then 6 clarifies that a little bit, what it means to be taken away. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. He's working with the vine vineyard analogy here, and the meaning is obvious. A vine branch has one use, to produce fruit. And if it doesn't produce fruit, it's not good for anything else but to be thrown away and burned. You need to understand this. God is about producing his fruit in his creation. And any and everything that does not produce fruit of righteousness in his creation, he will throw away and burn. And the Bible is really, really clear about that again and again, not to rub our noses in it, but to call us away from it, to warn us so we avoid it. Obviously, there's a warning and a call there to those who have not even claimed in any way at all to be attached to the vine. There's a warning there, apart from the vine, there's no fruit in your life, and you'll be gathered and thrown into the fire. Come to the vine. Trust Him to run His life and power into you and live and produce fruit that's pleasing to God and be saved. There's a warning in there for you, but you're not the main audience. The main audience are those who are externally connected. Who in some way visibly are fastened branches in the vine. Members in the church. Regular attenders in the church. Visitors who call themselves Christians here in the church. You're the people that he's talking to. Be warned by this. Is his word moving in and gradually taking over your life? Is this Jesus your treasure? What your life is banked on? Do you walk with Him throughout the day? Is your life being changed into conformity to Him? Is the fruit of Christ-like holiness growing in your life? I can't answer that for you. I wouldn't presume to try because I can't move into your heart and look it all over and make an accurate judgment. So I just bring it up and warn you with it. Not talking about losing salvation here. We're talking about the universal human gift of self-deception. A self-deception that has convinced you that you ever had salvation to start with. The proof of genuine internal heart connection is abiding fruit of righteousness, not a profession of faith. Not a prayer prayed in the past somewhere. Not a certificate in which somebody wrote on it, now you're a Christian. Is there fruit? Is there fruit? Not nailed up there. Fruit growing from the power of Christ running through you, coming out of you, that is in keeping with repentance. Fruit of righteousness. Is it there? If you're in a period right now where you don't know if it's there or it's not there in abundance, repent. Come to Christ. Abide today. 
it's less important to figure out what actually happened 20 years ago. It's less important to figure that out than it is today to repent and come walk with Jesus. You may never be able to understand what happened 20 years ago. Repent today and walk with Jesus. Why walk next to the cliff? Come to him. So obviously there, that's a, a motive to abide in Christ to avoid the fire of, of judgment. It's the negative answer that he gives here, but there's a far more enticing and appealing positive answer. In verses 7 to 11, there is a whole host of marvelous lures that should draw you on towards this, that should motivate you to want to abide in Christ. I'm going to skip through them and just make a couple of comments here. Verse 7, a changed nature that leads to a productive prayer life and actually fights against frustration in your life. As you're abiding in Christ, His Word's abiding in you, what's happening there? It's running throughout all of you and it's changing you. Sanctification is happening. Your desires, your wishes, your, your agendas, all of those things are being renovated to be matched to Christ. And so then He says, when that's happening, ask for whatever you want because what you want is what I want. There's a glorious thing here. The frustration of, I want this, but I get this, that gap begins to narrow as you walk with and abide with Christ such that what you want and what you get is matched up. I want what Christ wants, so I pray for that and I get it. Now, he never gives you anything bad, anything destructive in your life, and sometimes we pray for things like that. And there are more questions to answer about in, de in detail, like, I prayed this and this happened, how does that all work out? We could talk about the details here. The general point is, he said, as my word lives in you and it changes you, ask for what you want and you get it. The premise is because you're being changed at the level of what you want. That's a glorious thing. It's very assuring, too. It shows you to be his disciples when you bear this fruit. The verse continues. Peace growing in you amidst chaos. Gentleness towards people growing in you, even when they treat you poorly, even when they sin against you. None of that's natural. It's all supernatural, which is why God's glorified and why it's assuring to you, this fruit that's coming up in me, it's God's work in me. I must be His. Verse 7. There's great assurance. There's the glory of God there. There's a change of your person. That's enticing. But if you're one of his, I think this is more enticing, verses 9 and 10. Follow the train of thought there in 9 and 10. As, Jesus says, as, just as the Father has loved me. How much does the Father love the Son? How much? Is there any degree, degree, to what extent can you say this much, but, but no further? How wide and long and high and deep is the love of God the Father for God the Son? God infinitely loves righteousness. He infinitely loves glory. He infinitely loves purity. And all of that is infinitely in Jesus. God the Father has a vast, unending love for God the Son. He delights in Him. And as the Father has loved me, so, in the same way, I have loved you. That should blow your mind if you think about that. The extent to which Jesus loves you, the same extent to which the Father loves Him. That's what you're remaining in. Oh, you have to remain or you face the fire of judgment. Sure, yeah, but don't you want to? It's a lure. This kind of love poured out on you and you sitting right there in the midst of it, basking in it, enjoying it every moment. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And verse 11 is a kicker for me. The word joy really gets my attention. Full joy in this life. 
I've told you this so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be full. Yes, there's full joy. There's a, there is a heart-changing mountain of joy in that kind of love. There's a mountain of joy in that kind of change of heart such that I'm assured that I belong to him. There's joy everywhere in that. It's his intent to pour the same kind of joy that he has into me. How happy is Jesus? Jesus is happy. He's at peace. He's content. He knows the love of the Father. His will is done. He knows joy, and that joy completely poured into me. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. At His right hand, pleasures forevermore. Calls you, abide with me. Why? So that you can be changed and know your mind, know that you sit in love and be filled with joy. Why would you not abide with him? Why would you not pray every morning with your scriptures open, Lord, drive yourself into me, change me, walk with me throughout this day? Why would you not? Remain with Christ, who himself will grow in you this fruitful life. Don't apple nail. Trust him. Abide with him. Enjoy him. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.